Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Marina Ashraki. I'm Grace Barber Plenty. On the show this week, Magic Mike returns for One Last Dance. Sarah Poli adapts Miriam Turb's novel in Women Talking, and we'll be talking to Claire Foy about her role in the film. And on Film Club, it's one of Poli's earlier acting roles in 1997's The Sweet Hereafter. All coming up on Truth in Movies, a little white lies podcast. Welcome, welcome, Grace. I've been very excited to have you on. I've been wanting to get you on for absolutely ages, but this does feel like the perfect week. For those of us who don't know you, perhaps any listeners who don't, uh, could you explain who you are and what you do? Yeah, I am a film programmer, mainly uh, working for BFI Festival, so London Film Festival and Flair LGBTQIA Plus Film Festival. But I sort of float around the internet and the film industry as well, sort of being chaotic and tweeting about Channing Tatum a lot and programming and curating a little Instagram page that's called Fat and Film, which is all about uh, depictions of fat people in film, positive depictions. And I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I I absolutely love that Instagram page. I mean, do you feel like this has been a good or a bad year at the moment for depictions of, you know, fat bodies in film? Or are we we making some strides backwards with Brendan Fraser in a fat suit? I was going to say, considering that's been sort of the main depiction of fatness for 2023, I'm like, this is not a banner year, but... I'm optimistic about what the rest of the year will hold. Well, I mean, Brian Tyree Henry, gorgeous man that he is, getting an Oscar nom at least was like somewhat of an encouraging fact. That was a sweetener. Yeah, that was nice. But yeah, I mean, what are the more kind of insidious things that people need to look out for when it comes to those depictions? Because it feels like we barely have any sensible way to even talk about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think people, and understandably, are kind of scared to even approach the subject. Like, you know, they're uncomfortable about terminology. They don't want to say the wrong thing, which of course I understand. But I think it's like letting fat people say what they think are positive depictions and negative depictions is really crucial because, you know, we have this lived experience and we know when our stories or stories that we're not living and like stories we want to be seeing on screen are being told. Wonderful. I very strongly suggest everybody join me and follow that. And Marina, editorial assistant to Little White Lies. I imagine you're having a hectic year with the new issue coming up, but also you're going to Berlin, right? That's cool. I am, yeah. It's um my first kind of bigger festival that I'm heading to. So equal parts excited and scared. <laughs> but I'm really excited to check out some of the films that are going to be shown. New Angela Shanalak and Margaret Von Trotter are really excited to 
check out some forum titles as well because I think that's that's a really strong Berlin strand. But yeah, have have either of you been before? I have not. I must say, the idea of Berlin in February is slightly less enticing to me than yeah. like Venice in late <laughs> August. <laughs> I went a couple of years ago now, I think, and yeah, it is it's quite something in terms of the weather. But it really was like from the one time I've been one of my favourite festivals. Like, there's something just so magical about having to run around an entire city, um, kind of similar to Cannes in a way, but like on a kind of bigger scale like because you're really going from like one side of the city to another and just go into all these really mad cinemas like it's really cool well hopefully you'll be giving us a little dispatch in a couple of weeks time marina you can tell us all about your highlights and uh, all the wonderful movies that you saw Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to the Steady HQ plan for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Mike Lane takes the stage once again when a business deal that went bust leaves him broken bartending in Florida. Hoping for one last hurrah, Mike heads to London with a wealthy socialite, Max, who lures him with an offer he can't refuse and an agenda all of her own. So Grace, probably safe to say that this was a film that I was very much highly anticipating, but judging by your Twitter, also something that you were excited for, is it fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I feel... I suppose I felt conflicted about this because I think Magic Mike XXL as a film in what has now become a three film franchise and just as a film on its own is such a perfect piece of cinema that I really could don't get me started on that film because the entire podcast will just be me like talking through scene by scene why I think it's such an amazing film and it really felt like a kind of natural end to the story of Magic Mike so when this was announced I was like oh amazing we get to kind of see more of this story but is this really necessary and you know if this film is a disappointment is it going to sort of tarnish the joy that Magic Mike XXL brought into our lives yeah I mean the first one was very good but I mean I think for most people the second one was really even better so there was for me at least a little bit of maybe they'll pull it off again and have a tonal shift like they did between those films and it'll be amazing Marina for you also coming into this film as a big magic mic stan I mean I really have to agree that XXL is like maybe the best movie sequel ever like it just breaks every rule of storytelling there's just no stakes no conflict no romance it's just like pure pleasure oriented joy so from the get-go I was like uh, I don't know what my expectations are for this and you can imagine my disappointment when I came to the realization that there's no Ken no Big Dick Richie no Tito no Tarzan and they're just replaced with this very confusing love story that really didn't work for me yeah I mean there were kind of love interests in the previous ones but I mean this one is really centered on a love story I mean Grace how did that work for you like Max with this billionaire played by um, Salma Hayek, who's going through a troubled divorce. Well, I feel like the film was trying to shoehorn in a million different plot lines into one, but this especially felt really tonally at odds with what we're used to with the Magic Mike films, because it really was 
Selma Hayek's film as much as Tani Taysom's. And it's always like a joy to see her on screen. Like there's just this strength that she really radiates. Also her wardrobe is like impeccable in this film. Like there's anyone that knows how to play a rich socialite, it's her. But at the same time, it just kind of took away from, you know, the main things that we really associate with this film. Like Marina said, like not seeing the boys that we've come to love in the last two films. And even the dancing is kind of secondary really until the second half of the film. And I think I actually did believe the chemistry between Channing Tatum and Selma Hayek. I thought there were some beautiful scenes in terms of the sort of Steven Soderbergh touch. There was this one scene in a restaurant that I was like, oh, that feels like a callback to Out of Sight, the way that he shot them and these sort of beautiful lingering close-ups of them. So I did believe the chemistry and I believed the love story, but it just kind of felt like it was almost plonked in the middle of a very different film. And sometimes I'd be just taken out of what felt like a more traditional Magic Mike storyline to suddenly, you know, watch some sexual tension between the two of them. I mean, the cynic in me kind of came out of this feeling that this was a kind of feature length advert for the stage show which they did put on for press and I went to a couple of weeks ago and it is amazing and those men are artists and just absolutely pure joy but I mean did you feel that as well I mean is that just kind of me with my disappointment trying to blame good old capitalism <laughs> So I saw the film with a friend who has been to the live show three times and delights in telling me that. It's so funny. She was like, oh, that person's a dancer in the show and this person's a dancer in the show. She was like, I squeezed that person's bum last time I went. I will choose to keep her anonymous in case she didn't want me to share that. But it kind of, it really hammered home how much of a sort of promotion for the live show it was. I think the one thing that kind of saved it for me is what is the live show lacking that the films have? Channing Tatum dancing. And we did get that in this film and I do think some people didn't necessarily love the sort of main number that Channing has I know Layla you sort of compared it online to that incredible scene that Rob McElderry has in um it's always sunny in Philadelphia which is like gorgeous but it kind of again I was just the Channing of it all yeah, but do you know that that actually, I found out from uh, Little White Lies Digital Editor Hannah Strong, it, that scene is choreographed by the same person. I mean, she copied her own homework. <laughs> it is like incredibly similar. <laughs> it's really not surprising. Like, it just feels like beat for beat. It's like the same dance. I literally wrote like in my notes in like capitals, like Mac finds his pride. And then I was like so shocked to find out that it was the same choreographer. But I mean, were there any moments in it? Because I suppose in the previous ones, it's like Genuine My Pony and Big Dick Richie dancing in the supermarket. These are like our great musical numbers. Did anything in this kind of reach those heights for you? I felt like we almost had it. We almost had it. They really built up to this group number because the film is set in London. It's, of course, on the top deck of a London bus. And it was maybe the most engaged the audience really felt with the dance numbers in the film when I saw it. And we get a few minutes of what feels like it's going to be this really like joyous, infectious number. And then it cuts away. It's really strange. And that was one of the scenes in the film that really left me wanting more. I was like, this could be it. This could be the big centrepiece. And then we never quite get it. It does feel like there's a few elements that kind of maybe either didn't get shot or ended up on the cutting room floor because they also keep referring to Selma Hayek's like really fearsome mother-in-law who's like holding all the purse strings and I was like oh clearly Mike is going to come and like win this woman over and then she simply just never appears. Yeah it was kind of giving the vision of London 
that's in like early 2000s. Like, I, I don't know if you've seen this, this Amanda Bynes caper called What What a Girl Wants, where um, Colin Firth is playing her like Tory Cinema's dad. a classic. I love it. That's one where they live in like a giant country home, but like in the middle of London. Yeah, yeah. It was giving that to me. Yeah, I just felt like it was it was really, it was really messy depiction of London. I was like, God, do I live here? Like... <laughs> But I mean, I guess the key thing is also like, do you think this film was sexy? The films are funny and they're interesting and well acted and stuff. But like, fundamentally, it needs to be sexy to work. And was it sexy to you? I think there were moments of sexiness. I am someone, as a long-term uh, challenge am fanatic, I actually... Zoe Kravitz has done wonders for that man. I don't know what happened when he shaved his head, but I was like, oh, I suddenly find him attractive. And I think I actually found him in the film more attractive than any of the dance numbers. Like, again, I know I mentioned Salma Hayek's wardrobe is impeccable. His wardrobe is also fantastic. He's kind of in these high-quality hoodies and Carhartt jackets and this one, like, really exquisite suit. And he He's just like he looks like an old movie star but obviously a contemporary himbo spin on it and I think there is just something that makes him a very like compelling and attractive lead but I don't know if I necessarily got that from the dance scenes and I guess as a film that's all about dance as a means of you know seducing and empowering women to not get that necessarily there were, mo- there were moments of course but to not get that from the dance scenes kind of feels like a little bit of a flaw, really. Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few interesting kind of philosophical takes on like the nature of dance. I mean, not least in this quite surprising choice to have the film being narrated by Selma Hayek's daughter. Like Marina, what did you make of that? It's just so baffling because I, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but Selma Hayek's daughter in, in the film says that she's uh, she's writing a novel. And I'm, is this narration meant to be part of that novel? And if so, why are you writing a novel about the philosophical perspectives of dance? It felt like not much, if any, thought was put into that. Yeah, I I ended kind of spiralling and being just like, well, is what this film actually saying that Mike is a figment of this person's imagination? Or (laughs) (laughs) one of the other kind of curious things about the film is the girl playing the daughter looks just like Thandie Wayne Newton, who was previously cast in this. And, you know, it's kind of funny that they clearly didn't recast the doppelganger daughter. I mean, do you, I mean, you clearly quite liked Selma Hayek in this, Grace, but do you think Maybe Fendi Way with her kind of slightly more brittle way of performing could have helped. I really didn't clock that as well. Um, she really does look identical to her. And I love how they have to shoehorn in a line about like, oh, I'm your adopted daughter. I was just like, the casting directors just saw a brown girl and they were like, that could be Selma Hayek's daughter. So that, yeah, that does feel like a little bit of a leftover that I've only just connected. It's a good question. It's so hard to imagine someone else in this role now. And I think because it kind of feels like it's, it's one of the few things that does really connect it to Magic Mike XXL is this thing of having like a powerful older woman obviously Jada Pinkett Smith in the last film and even like a little cameo from Elizabeth Banks as well like that feels very sort of like quintessentially Magic Mike and I can imagine Thunderway might have given more of a sort of not like smaller performance but I think you're right something more sort of brittle and more sort of grounded and obviously she would have brought it more to a British perspective so I don't know if it quite would have worked in the same way I can't imagine the sort of smouldering intensity that Sam Hayek and Channing Tatum have would have been given with her but I think she could have brought something more sort of soulful to it I suppose I don't know if that would have changed the dynamic of the film I mean fundamentally do you feel like it ever really managed to recover from the loss of this like 
ensemble that we've kind of came to know and love. I, I mean, I vaguely knew that they weren't going to be in it, but it still slightly broke my heart at the end of their small cameo when I realised that was all we were going to get. Yeah, I feel like it really didn't work without them because I feel like they were part of what made Magic Mike what it is. And without them, it was just not nearly as like goofy or like funny enough. But we move. I mean, they say this is his last dance, but maybe it's not the boys' last dance. <laughs> maybe there's still something for the MMCU. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. I mean, and you can find many of them at the Hippodrome putting on an incredible show. One of them does a tap number that like nearly brought tears to my eyes. But yeah, we should get some scores on this before we move on to more kind of empowering feminist tales. Marina, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? So I would put my anticipation right out of four was really looking forward to this film. But also I thought the title made it sound like they're going to take Mike at the back and like shoot him <laughs> in the head. <laughs> and then in enjoyment, I would probably do a three. It was fun. It was light. It was passable, I guess. But in retrospect, I have to bump that down to a two, unfortunately. It just felt really rushed and yeah decisions were made they really were grace what about you i'm gonna have to go unsurprisingly to no one a solid five for anticipation this really was like my cinematic event of the year even though as i mentioned i had my doubts i really was just like this is what cinema needs in 2023 this is what's going to save us all for enjoyment i would probably say a four because as i said seeing it with my friend that seen the live show we were just having a fun time together the aunties next to us were losing their minds so like i had a great time <laughs> in the cinema and i think anyone that goes to see this film for just a pure girls night out on a friday will have a similar experience for retrospect i'd have to say a, you know i'm gonna say a solid three because as i said i did enjoy myself i think it has its flaws but there's also maybe they're fewer and far between but there are things to love in this film and it will make you want to go see magic mike live so yes capitalism got to us all but so it does <laughs> in this modern world so i'll say a solid three yeah i think i'm i'm closer with marina but yes five in anticipation i really was looking forward to it so much and i think because magic mike xxl has got so little in terms of plot to that you know that's not what makes it great that i just felt kind of getting these two back together something wonderful could happen maybe three in enjoyment I did laugh out loud a few times, but a few times I wasn't sure whether I was supposed to be laughing. I was laughing kind of at it rather than with it. And two, in retrospect, I think it really turned for me in that scene on the bus that you mentioned where it just you feel like it's going to build to something great and then just goes nowhere. And we got so little sense of who any of this kind of new ensemble were. Which, which was a very puzzling choice to me. But if they want to resurrect Magic Mike for another dance and they bring back Big Dick Richie, I, I'm going to be back at a five in anticipation. <laughs> Next up, Women Talking. In 2010, eight women from an isolated Mennonite colony grappled with reconciling their reality with their faith after it's revealed that the men from their community drugged and raped the community's women at night for years. Before we get into women talking, I caught up with Claire Foy, who plays Salome in the film, a woman who's furious to discover that she, her friends, her family, and even her young daughter have been abused. Congrats on the Best Picture nomination. It's very exciting. I mean, obviously, we wanted Sarah to get the Best Director one, and I think history will prove that that was a mistake. <laughs> 
struggle with so many things and mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? You don't want to forget Oscar mouth. Is that right? No. Phrase when it comes to Oscars, I don't know. But yeah, best picture. I think I was very reassured by it. I think I'm really glad that the industry went that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult subject matter, but like the reception seems to have been so positive right from like its first screenings. Has any of that reception kind of surprised you, how kind of warmly it's been received? I mean, I think you're surprised with anything if anyone likes anything that you do. I think that with this, I think our hearts were on the line a little bit more, but just because with how closely we all held it and also the experience was so total and unique and its own thing suddenly allowing other people into that was quite a frightening thing because you're sort of offering it up to be criticized that's just what you do and make anything yeah but with this i just feel like it was just it's just incredible what sarah did with the film i mean how much material she had how much material we shot like to make it into what she's made it is a real feat and an achievement so yeah so it was nerve-wracking but then I just it was really when I started seeing people like we went to Telluride mm-hmm. we did like quite a few like screenings like a lot like a lot of people in like must be 800 people in them and they were full and people like were staying afterwards to talk about it and like really engaged really and you would be around Telluride and hear people talking about the film you were like oh my god like it's it's not like it's doing something but like it's people are actually talking about something as if it's not just a film it's a yeah. conversation and that's like the most exhilarated I'd have ever, ever been because it's not just about what costume I was wearing and I mean it's a beautiful film and the, the DOP I think has done mm. an incredible job because I mean in the midst of this incredibly hideous thing that's happening like mm. there is a lot of beauty in it I suppose yeah I think it would be very tempting probably to make it quite bucolic and you know twinkly in the sense that they live in a beautiful part of the world and there's lots to be said about that but I feel like Sarah and Luke found a really good line of making it you know she always wanted to make it like a fable she always said she wanted to be like a faded postcard because the conversation is over before it's begun if you know what I mean like it's you're already you're talking back from a time to people as opposed to telling it in real time I suppose like they've already left by the time they tell the story yeah you know what I mean and so I think there's something really great about that and also I think it makes it easier for people to digest weirdly you're living in amongst it at that time I didn't really have that much of a sense of what time it was I did do some reading and you know afterwards and kind Mm. of find out that this was an incident that sadly a true incident that kind of inspired this but like it doesn't really have like that much of a sense of time and place I mean do you think there's a sense that this could happen anywhere with this sort of the way that it's been done yeah I think that that I when I've watched the film and especially when I was making it I I hoped that because obviously they're a devoutly religious group of women Mm -hmm. who are obviously by the nature of their community it's not diverse in any way shape or form Mm -hmm. but when watching it I really hoped that it by its specificity it becomes sort of universal and the women and people have said this to me after screenings that it can become representative of groups of marginalized people everywhere like mm-hmm. the, the conversation that these women have could be so many different groups of people there is obviously based around faith but there, there is like the possibility that it could be applicable to other like the fundamentals of what this conversation is about moving forward collectivity as community discussing the prospect of what that faith means to people or what being a human being basically means to people and how you move forward in the world and how you treat people with kindness and love and respect and compassion as opposed to conflict and aggression and hostility and all those things and how that is really how things hopefully change. But, you know, who knows? Wouldn't it be great? (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice, the feminist utopia that will eventually end up with? But when you actually first kind of got the script, was it very obvious to you that the role for you was Salome? 
no I mean I didn't think any role was for me because it was too great basically and I just I don't know it's like a self-protectionist thing that you don't want to get too involved in it or love it too much because I mean what are the chances but with Salome she was the person that I read the book and I read the script and I just was like yes I mean I get it I know exactly not I know who she is but I identify with her in a way that is quite visceral and I don't know whether that's because I admire her or because it's like dormant parts of myself that I wish were allowed to be expressed that way or things like that and I just loved her bravery and her strength and her open-heartedness and love I think it all comes from love and how that love has been betrayed and and she's been so wounded by what's happened and in order to not collapse she has to fight back she has to fight back she's kind of the person that I hoped I would be in a situation like that I mean that fury that she has is so righteous but Mm. performing that was that kind of exhausting difficult to kind of keep at that level of anger for so much of it yeah but I don't think any more tiring than playing someone who's completely repressed Mm -hmm. and like doesn't express anything and in, in a way, that can be more exhausting than playing someone who just gets it all out. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't, she does hold on to things, obviously, and her anger is definitely a protection. But someone who's not aware of their own feelings can be sometimes, like, so exhausting <laughs> to play because it's like, you just wish that they could just get them out. Because um, that's quite a lot to hold a lot of the time. But yeah, no, I just, I loved that there was very little filter with her. I loved it. I really loved the relationship that you had with Rooney Mara's character, who's mm-hmm. kind of done the opposite way in some ways and sort of quite detached from what's going on Mm. I mean how did you guys understand the relationship between the two characters well we're both a pair of sisters like she's Mm -hmm. got she's close to her sister I'm really really close to my sister so I think we realized just inherently what that bond is and how a lot of it's unspoken and a lot of it's in the caretaking of one another and the love that you show each other. You can disagree and like be scratching each other's eyes out, but there can be sort of a tender yeah. thing there as well. So I think we both, we, we spoke about that a little bit and we had like conversations about how our family dynamic was different from the other family's dynamic, which I think is really interesting. And Judith, obviously, being our mother, there was a tenderness and a love and affection that I think we had for each other. And Rudy's obviously in the movie Ona's pregnant and she's pregnant as a result of, sexual abuse so mm-hmm. and as a Salome's had many many children by this point and therefore I think there is a natural thing that happens anyway when you are a mother already and you see someone about to become a mother that you sort of want to do it for them even yeah. though you know how amazing it is to do it yourself like you're also a bit like I also don't want you to have to go through it like I know what's going to happen to you <laughs> I yeah. sort of want to save you from it so I felt like Salome always had that feeling for her and so me and me and Rooney would just we had our own little thing going on like we would have like, we'd be holding hands or like I'd be stroking her back and I don't think any of it made it into the film but that sense that we were sort of not twins but we were constantly aware where each other were and mm-hmm. like as our family was quite a happy unit even though there's a lot of sadness in it and what you don't see is that in the book one of our sisters took her own life as a result of the attacks oh. so there is like a bonding tragedy from the whole experience and also just that you've lost they've already lost one sister so that brings them sort of closer together. Obviously, this is the film kind of primarily about women, but one of the more kind of agonising things that I can't stop thinking about is this decision, what, you, what you're going to do with the boys, what the characters are going to do with the boys. Mm-hmm. At what point do we kind of cut them off? When do they go from being our children to being a threat? Mm. I mean, is that something that you grappled with? Yeah, I think, well, because Sloane's got Aaron, and so it's a very prevalent thing in her mind, and I don't think she has thought about him as a boy. He's her child, and he's vulnerable and needs her, and she loves him, and he still holds her hand. And, you know, and he's 13, so he's on the cusp, even, you know, obviously they're not in Western culture, so they're not as 
grown up, I suppose, as a 13-year-old would be today. But those hormones are brutal and the separation's going to come. And I, I found that incredibly beautiful watching the film, actually, how Sarah treats that. And I think the thing I think is so beautiful and so moving is when you see the close-ups of the boys' faces. And these women love these boys and men. And that is like life in the sense that people can hurt you and love you at the same time. Yeah. I, you know, wrestling with that concept, I think Salome is very, you know, they're coming, it's my child is coming with me. Like, mm. I don't think she's got a difficulty with that. But I think that wrestling with that concept, and I think at one point there is even that, you know, not all men idea, but it's really important that that is in the film because it is part of the conversation. It's a really integral part of the conversation. And these women are able to have that conversation about we are going to miss our sons and our brothers and our fathers and our husbands. Like, that, it's not that simple. You can't just separate people like that so yeah did definitely wrestle with it but also I think that I'm so proud of these and have been able to have both those conversations there's this kind of thing that keeps coming up of like female imagination and then you know this is a book written by a woman directed by a woman with female cast do you kind of leave the project having like a strong sense of what the female imagination is God, no. No, I mean, I think I, my own, but I, you know, I can't talk for every woman. Um, I don't know. I think I love that we reclaimed, like, that Sarah reclaimed that what was thrown at them, that they had made up these attacks. And it was a wild female imagination, like, in the sense that they were doing it for attention or they were hysterical in some way. I love that that is reclaimed in some way to be not a positive, but they are using it as an act that they are actively taking themselves as a step forward that they're making themselves and that it is wild and imaginative and inherently female. Like there is something extraordinary in that. But I, I do now know what it means to be in a female space. And I've known that in my private life. I've known that with all my friends and how special and amazing that is. But I had never had that. You know, obviously the film could not be made without men. There were men on set, there were men in the cast. But to be in that space with women and share those experiences and be honest and live with each other for those months was, like, totally eye-opening and rejuvenating and also just how I want everything to always be. <laughs> so really lovely oh, way of working. Thanks so much. Oh, t- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So Marina, this is kind of introduced to us as a work of female imagination. And it's from director Sarah Poli, who you know, was a child actress and still continues to act. How did you feel about it in terms of like quite heavy feminist messaging? But did it come together to you as a film? Yeah, I think that there is a really moving and empathetic thread throughout the film that is about women's struggle with abuse and building a language for trauma and recovery and community and perseverance. And the women do have really intelligent conversations about kind of gender relations and and violence. And I think a lot of the criticisms aimed at this is kind of how it fits into contemporary gender discourse and that it would be unrealistic to have these characters speak with such eloquence about gender politics, but I didn't find that to be true. I didn't find that there were any buzzwordy conversations happening other than this one mention of not all men, which, you know, whatever. I thought Sarah Polly handled these issues with great sensitivity and she directs with like this subtlety. But in the end, I think it ended up feeling a bit stiff and it led the film to feel a bit didactic. Like the whole film's conceit felt a bit didactic and a bit stagey and distant by the end yeah watching it I was quite surprised to find it was adapted from a novel because it did to me feel like oh this must have been a stage play that's what they adapted it from yeah but one of the big things in it Grace is that we don't see the acts themselves we kind of see hints of them and we stay entirely with the women I mean like what did you make of that choice to have the focus so determinedly in that way I think that's such a powerful and inspired choice. Often the most powerful depictions of abuses of women that I've seen on screen are when things are not shown and they're, you know, told whether that's through subtext or even within this film, you know, sometimes they will talk about the fact that they've been abused, but they don't go into the specifics. They don't need to. This is a colony of women that have all shared this same abuse and trauma. And while that has obviously affected them in different ways. So, you know, one of the characters is pregnant there's mention that, you know, this has caused some of the women to kill themselves and, you know, they're suffering in these various different ways. But the thing really uniting them is the trauma. And by having the women sort of speak about this in their own way and using their own sort of shared language, obviously this is adapted and written in English, but in the book and sort of in the context of the Mennonite community, they're speaking this language, which is sort of, I think it's it's called sort of like old German or something like that. It's a specifically Mennonite language. But I think having them sort of like give us as much and as little of the acts themselves is really powerful. And it does, it never feels sort of exploitative as well. I didn't know anything about Mennonites at all. These is, this is kind of the first I'd heard of them, but they're kind of similar to the Amish. Is that fair to say? They sort of seem to exist a hundred years ago, even though it's a contemporary setting in many ways. So I'm actually like, only knowledgeable about the Mennonite community because I've read a lot of Miriam Tal's books. She's one of my favourite authors. I just find her work so incredible. Her writing is often very sort of stark and direct and then she will just drop something in that's incredibly funny or, you know, as you can probably sense with this film, incredibly moving. And then it's just like, okay, on to the next. And there's really like no time to linger on these facts. It's very matter of fact, but it does also devastate you. But she's someone that comes from a Mennonite background 
herself. And so often her writing is either about people in the Mennonite communities or people that have either chosen to leave or been excommunicated from Mennonite communities. So from her work, I feel like I've learned a lot, not just about Mennonite communities, but also about women in Mennonite communities. So I think it's interesting, like all of my knowledge about this religion, these communities coming from one author, who's obviously also the author of this text. I was like, yeah, this feels accurate and this feels true to form. But then I'm like, but it feels accurate because you've just read other books by the author of this film. So obviously I'm basing it all on one person's sort of account of it. And was this quite like a faithful adaptation in many ways? I haven't read her books, but I will get to it based on that strong recommendation. Yeah, it's a really faithful adaptation with one exception. And this is one of the flaws of the film for me is the choice of the narrator. It's really interesting in the book. It's written by a woman with a male narrator describing women talking. And that's Ben Wishaw's character, August, who is a school teacher and can read and write. And so he's sort of the note taker and the minute taker for the women. But in the film, I believe, is it? It's sort of, it's the niece of Rooney Mara's character's unborn child and the narration is sort of directed to the unborn child which felt to me very reminiscent of you know earlier Terence Malick films and like to me the comparison that really struck in my mind was Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust which is narrated by an unborn child so that strand of like feminist storytelling was really interesting to me but it did kind of shift the narrative from the book to the film, I think, because it sort of rendered Ben Wishaw's character a little bit useless in the background. And I did really find his character's narration really compelling. But I also understand why Polly sort of moves away from that in the film. Yeah, I mean, the kind of central conflict that we're looking at in this is given that this has happened, whether they are going to stay or they're going to fight or they're just going to carry on as normal. Did that seem like a plausible option to you, Marina? Like, was the characterization enough that you could believe that many of these women would just prefer to return to the status quo? I think that's something that, and I hope this isn't a spoiler, I think that's something that Frances McDormand's character like exemplifies that side, I guess, that that camp of women choosing to stay and do nothing. I don't think it's it's entirely implausible, especially if it's women of kind of like a, an older generation, even within like a, an isolated colony like the the Mennonites. Yeah. For me, I mean, I talked to Claire Foy, as listeners will know, but like, you know, someone like Salome, who is just absolutely furious, absolutely outraged, seemed to be kind of my audience surrogate but perhaps that in some ways is quite a shallow understanding of what women do in these situations of abuse that we'd all like to think that we'd kind of become the hero but maybe something more passive is not just easier but quite common it's an incredibly depressing thing to say. <laughs> yeah I mean just in terms of this ensemble because you know we've got Rooney Mara, we've got Claire Foy, Francis McDormand that you mentioned, Jesse Buckley's stunning as always in this. I mean, were there any highlights for you, Grace? So I really found Claire Foy to be the heart of this film. And I think she's not an actress that I'm necessarily super familiar with her work. Kind of shallowly, I really associate her with The Crown and sort of like a proper sort of like buttoned up British period drama. I think she's, you know, someone that's very credible in that world, but I've never seen her necessarily in something that feels out of her comfort zone. But I thought she absolutely mesmerised me in this film like my eyes were on her at all times and I agree with you Leila that she is kind of this audience surrogate in terms of her fury and the way that that rages through the film but I think she does also have these more like quiet subtle moments that really ground why 
this character is the way that she is. I also just want to give a shout out to, I think it's Michelle McLeod, who plays, I think her character is called Mijal. She's the woman with the glasses. And I'd never seen this actress before. And I just really enjoyed the sort of varying tones that she brought to the film. Like I think she brings a real lightness and a real sort of like dark comedy. But also there's this scene where she's essentially like having a panic attack, which is really, really powerful as well. And I just feel like she's someone to watch. And for you, Marina, any any particular standouts or all lowlights? I mean, feel free to feel free to say you dislike someone. I think, obviously, having said that the that the setting is very stagey, I, I do think that this kind of confined set allows kind of the performances and the monologues to really shine. Obviously, you've got the bigger names like Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy, but I did think that Judith Ivy and Sheila McCarthy as the colony's elders were really excellent, and also the young actors as well. I didn't think that the bigger actors in this overshadowed them at all. I I think that the ensemble altogether worked really, really great. Yeah. Finally, none of us, I think, give too much credence to the Oscars as being like actually a reflection of what was the best in the past year. But do you think it's telling that perhaps this was acknowledged as best film, best screenplay, but we had another year of all male directors that perhaps they weren't truly that interested in, going to make a terrible joke, women talking? Grace, do you think Sarah Poli deserved that nomination? Yeah, absolutely. I think the way that she's directed this film is obviously very divisive. People either hate or love the cinematography and the colour grading of this film. But ultimately, the way that she really pulls the audience in is commendable. And, you know, considering that we are sort of in this post-Me Too era cinema, and we're now seeing, you know, we're seeing like the story of Harvey Weinstein and the story of Me Too displayed on screen, but we're also obviously continuing to see these films about women's sexual abuses. And I think it does feel at odds with what the film industry saying to not nominate a film like this and to nominate a bunch of films by men that you know really could be a lot of them could be nominated any year some of these films just really feel like it's a sort of oscars checklist like it is a drama directed by a man maybe it's about filmmaking so i think it would have been a powerful statement to nominate her but it's also very unsurprising Sadly, very unsurprising. But we should get some scores on this because we've got some more Sarah Polly to get into. Marina, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, I would go with a four in anticipation. I've been hearing about this film for a while. In enjoyment, I would probably say three. I mean, a lot has been said about the film's colour grading and it is hideous. Uh, not that that distracts too much from the kind of impact of the actual story, but oh my God, like someone do something about that. And then I would probably go with a three in retrospect as well. I'm I'm kind of painfully on the fence with this one, even though I, I could speak to someone who absolutely loved it and completely understand why. And I could speak to someone who really didn't get that much out of it and also understand where they come from. Very balanced as always. Grace, what about you? I think I'd go for fairly similar scores. I think I'd maybe go for a three in terms of anticipation. When this film was first announced, I was really excited because I obviously love the author and this book. I thought it was a fantastic cast, but seeing the fairly you know divisive immediate reviews of it, and this was mainly like talking about the colour grading, I was like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't actually you know, a successful adaptation. And I think there's also really the elephant in the room with this being produced by Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's production company. And the fact that someone that 
you know, is now revealed to be, you know, someone that has been abusive is funding and producing all these films about women and abuse kind of leaves a bit of taste in the mouth. Yeah, I believe he produced She Said as well. So it's quite yes, a... Yes, he did. Yes, well... Anyway, allegedly, allegedly, these yeah. are all allegations. Yeah, yeah, that's Please true. Don't sue us. <laughs> Brad Pitt, if you're listening. In terms of enjoyment, it's, it's such a strange word to, I suppose, associate enjoyment with this film. I probably would say a three as well. There were points of it that I was really engaged by. There were moments where I was like, I never want to look at this colour grading ever again. But ultimately, I think in retrospect, I would rate it a four because I did just find it so powerful. And I think in the end, I could push through how ugly it looked and just sort of really focus on the ensemble and what is being said and this sort of message about women's choices. I did find really powerful and, you know, certain elements of the film really have lingered with me. Yeah, I, I think I'm aligned with you exactly, Grace. Yeah, sort of a three, three, four. The colour grading perhaps didn't bother me as much because I think of Sarah Polly as being such a thoughtful filmmaker and writer that I was just trying to kind of figure out that this must be with kind of quite specific intention and what is it about, you know, that it's supposed to be brutal and unsettling in some ways. So I, I did recover from that. And I just read her book on one of the podcast recommendations. And it's such an interesting kind of companion piece because she's so intelligent and nuanced when it comes to the dynamics around women's abuse and the way that you kind of recover from trauma. So yes, for in retrospect, next up, Film Club, The Sweet Hereafter. After a school bus accident in a small town kills 14 children, a class action lawsuit ensues, proving divisive in the community and becoming tied with personal and family issues. So Grace, I think this was kind of not that well reviewed and seen upon its release, but it's kind of come to be regarded as like one of the great modern films of Canadian cinema. Is it your first time coming to it? It is, yeah. I've sort of read a lot about this film and I've always meant to sort of check it out over the years, but I've never really gotten around to it. So it was nice to finally have an opportunity to actually watch it. It feels like it's such a 90s film and it's really a sort of film that you don't necessarily see a lot of anymore. You know, it's a very sort of like muted, small town drama. It's an ensemble cast. It's dealing with issues of grief and trauma, but in a kind of a subtlety that I don't think we necessarily see a lot of in modern cinema. Um, so I found it quite interesting. And um, Marina, what about you? Big Ian Holm fan? Have you watched his entire filmography or is this, is this <laughs> a mean, new one probably. He seems to be in every <laughs> single film, but I think this might be the, the first film that I've seen where he's actually a protagonist. I thought he was great in it. Well, I, I, I watched the film last night. It's so depressing, but I think it really manages to tap into the small town, rural mentality and this kind of shared trauma and the complexities of grief and I really kind of fell in love with the chronology of the film and how this like non-linear structure kind of made the emotional beats really like spread out I thought the pacing was great the score was great mm. high praise indeed great so we've kind of got these two threads we've got Ian Holm who's this like lawyer trying to get the class action lawsuit dealing with the fact that his daughter is abusing drugs and is on kind of quite a dark spiral, as well as this town grieving and, you know, whether or not this lawsuit is going to happen. Did those kind of come together well enough for you in a kind of single narrative? 
I don't know if they did, to be honest. I found both of the narratives really compelling on their own. And I understand why they were sort of woven together. You know, like it motivates his character and it's the reason why he's doing what he does both professionally and personally. But I just found it extremely jarring. And especially with the chronology also, you know, like featuring some of his past memories. Although I do think the best and the most sort of moving scene in the film is the one in which he's talking about an accident that his daughter has when she's little and having to like rush her to the hospital like that was really the centerpiece of the film for me and then I was like oh but it's not just about this there's also you know the bus crash and everything else that's going on and it just really sort of like took me out I could never really determine what was meant to be the main sort of like focus and main narrative thread of the film I think I think that's very fair but then yes Sarah Poli the reason we're returning to this like she was a child actor she'd been on many horrifying film sets as she's spoken about before she came up to this one which by all understandings this was quite a safe and nurturing space and Ian Holm was no monster to her but I mean as a child actor what what did you make of her Marina like she's a seasoned pro but she's still I think she looks a lot younger than she is because I think she's about 15 when she made this but to me she's about 12 I mean you know how did you find her in this Yeah, I thought her performance was really balanced throughout, really vivid and really upsetting. And she kind of flickers from this kind of innocence, like she switches in a way that's like so profound, but with such like quiet force almost. And it's really soul crushing. And it's also how do you get a child actor to evoke those like really complex feelings yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of terrible child actors out there trying to perform grief. But um, Grace, for you, are there any other highlights to this film? Obviously, the reason we're talking about this film is because it stars Sarah Polly uh, in front of the camera. But I think something that I noticed as a sort of thread between this and women talking that I found really engaging is who do we attribute blame to in these situations of like utter, utter trauma? I think, you know, obviously a lot of women talking is and, you know, really you mentioned that there's obviously that line drop of sort of not all men uh, in women talking when they're trying to decide who is at fault here. Who do we who do we blame and also who do we forgive? And I think that's a really central point of the sweet hereafter you know by meeting many of the sort of central players in this absolute tragedy we're not really left at the end with a solid conclusion like who was to blame for this accident and I think it's very measured in the way that it sort of explores blame and I guess a lack of blame and lack of accountability as well like obviously Ian Holmes character is trying to place the blame he's he's sort of he's trying to sort of be a middleman and just say I'm going to take this all the way to the top and it's the fault of the town it's the fault of the government you know there's this really powerful speech he gives he was like we will find someone to blame and it's less about people and it's more about a system but in a small town are you able to do that can you blame the system or do you have to sort of point fingers at people so I found that really interesting and compelling yeah it did remind me of something a lawyer friend said to me once of like if you can move on in any possible way you must never ever litigate it will ruin your life and yeah I think it's a thread with women talking as well as like who gains everything from the pursuit of justice in some respects are you just going to be re-traumatizing yourself if you try and fight or find something to fight necessarily or even determine what it is you need to fight. Yes, sorry, another very depressing point from me. One of the very lovely things that we do at the end of the podcast that's got hopefully very little to do with trauma. So Grace Barber Plenty, what is your non-movie recommendation for the week? 
I am so sorry, but I am going to cheat a little bit only because any opportunity I have to talk about Miriam Tal's books, I will take them. I will indoctrinate the entire world. So I do want to recommend another one of her books, if I may. And it does have a kind of film link. But one of her early books is called Irma Voth. And basically, when she was a teenager and still living in a Mennonite community, a film crew turned up in her town and they were shooting the Mexican filmmaker Carlos Brigadas's film Silent Light which is all about a Mennonite community and they were basically like do you want to be in this film can you help us so she was sort of working behind the scenes and also starring in this film and it's a fictionalised account of that time but it's also a story about family it's a story about sisterhood as with all of her work it's like equal parts devastating and hilarious and I think within the like the literary communities people have heard of her and they've heard of her books but I don't think she as I said gets enough credit so I've gone full fangirl on this podcast I won't apologize for it so uh that is my pick for the week oh no that's absolutely perfect uh marina what about you your non-movie recommendation so i recommend this collection of short stories called terminal boredom which is the first English translation of the writings of Izumi Suzuki, who was a Japanese science and speculative fiction writer who wrote a bunch of short stories in the 70s and 80s. It's really remarkable, like weird proto-cyberpunk tales are really deeply rooted in the Japanese subculture, depicting like really bleak worlds uh, with a really like existential focus on the self and kind of examining the self when it comes to alienation and depression and addiction, but also bringing in kind of gender politics and the ennui of everyday life. It's really great stuff. I would highly, highly recommend yeah, I'm already in my head thinking like if I read the first book and then I rewatch Magic Mike double XL and then <laughs> like the, the perfect palate cleanser in between Dave. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, Tiny Creatures abound with Ant-Man Quadromania and Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Hannah Strong will be talking to the legendary Michael Douglas. And on Film Club, it's Jenny Slate's earlier work, Obvious Child. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Grace Barber Plenty and Marina Asciotti. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 